this really speaks to how we value life. And I think in, a, in our culture, in American culture, how we value life or don't value it is directly related to our invisibilized history of genocide and enslavement. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements, living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, writer, facilitator of Black liberation work, auntie extraordinaire, doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And today we're going to be talking about some things that will probably be really intense for folks to listen to. Um, This is going to be the first of our conversations around Me Too and um, Time's Up and the work that has been happening to bring down the patriarchy and misogyny and um, and the culture of rape, rape culture in this country. So we know this is going to be a tender conversation. We just want to let people know up front that that's the territory we're heading into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, should we start off with the quote? Yeah, yeah. We found yes. um, an Earthseed verse that is actually very related to this moment that we're in. Uh, Adrian, do you want to read it? Sure. So Octavia wrote, Civilization is to groups what intelligence is to individuals. It is a means of combining the intelligence of many to achieve ongoing group adaptation. Civilization, like intelligence, may serve well, serve adequately, or fail to serve its adaptive function. When civilization fails to serve, it must disintegrate until it is acted upon by unifying internal or external forces. Mm. That just feels so relevant to the moment that we're in. Um, We are watching, we are witnessing a disintegration of a particular way of being, or even a particular way of understanding um, what is acceptable inside of culture, inside of civilization, inside of society. Um, and similarly, we're witnessing a grasping, I think, um, mm-hmm. holding on to um, many of the things that people perceive to be positive about that other way of being. Um, um, I think that we're all kind of inside of this grasping inside this moment of, you know, uh, um, I think we see it a lot, particularly around the, um, the artists, like the men who create art, who have been, um, publicly brought down this, um, we're witnessing the mourning, the grief and mourning that the people are inside of around, um, yeah. What does it mean? What does it mean to lose uh, not just the respect for the person or a belief in the rightness or goodness of the person, but also what does it mean to potentially lose access to their work? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's a really, it's really interesting moment. 
I feel like there's something around like reality and projection that's also falling apart. It's like the way we have understood gender has been a projection. The way we've understood the power dynamics of intimacy has been a projection. And a lot of how we understand the personalities of other people and especially famous people is projection. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. now it's like reality Mm -hmm. is interceding on all of those projections. And we are asked, you know, are we willing to look at reality? And then once we've seen it, once we've shared it, once we've spoken it, what then? So it's been a few months. It's been like almost a year of this conversation happening in the public sphere. And I know that we have had, you know, talks about it and check-ins about it along that journey and that it's been shaking us both up. And I know that there's a few people we want to interview around this or have talked about interviewing around this and having conversations with, but it felt important to us to first just have a conversation between us um, around what has this felt like? What has it surfaced in us? What questions? um, What new understandings of our own histories? Um, Because I think that's so much of, of what's going on here. And just to name that this absolutely feels like an apocalypse <laughs> of um, <laughs> a moment, right? Like to me, it definitely feels like, oh, um, something has changed and there's not really a going back. Um, and we're still trying to figure yeah. out what are the ways forward. Um, so let's start there. It's just like what for you um, have been some of the things that this Me Too moment has surfaced, this Me Too movement and the the sort of apocalypse of, rape culture. Well, it's so fascinating to think back on, and I know that there have been multiple iterations of, um, you know, I think, I think that's, there's something, even before I talk about what my experience has been in this last year, I want to remind myself and remind all of us who are having this conversation that there's a broader context in which this moment has become possible. Uh, and mm-hmm. I was thinking particularly in the last couple of days about um, the way that um, the crisis of sexual assault and sexual abuse inside the church became, um, was uncovered in the last couple of decades. Um, and also in the military, right? That like Mm -hmm. in the last couple of decades, we've had these um, two very public, very media-driven institutions or two experiences of of these institutions really being um, torn open so that people could see the level of abuse that was happening inside. Um, And I think that that's important context for... um, this particular moment that, you know, Mm -hmm. that this is not happening. It's not like there's not a foundation on which this, um, the way that this movement is happening is, is built on. Um, and, and so it's interesting to think about like, what is the shift from, um, the nature of those, those other experiences of institutions being mm-hmm. really like pulled open. And a lot of that being about investigative reporting and in, uh-huh. I mean, in the work of investigation itself yes. and being very driven by facts and data 
um, and interviews and discovery and all this stuff. Um, And that we are in a different iteration of this same and trials. Exactly. You know, and um, some idea that there is like a, that there could be a judicial measure by which um, justice could be served. Yes. And I think we are in this, we are in a different iteration of this same work. And this new iteration is about really uncovering the ways in which um, none of this, like assault, none of the assaults are isolated incidences, right? That it's part of this continuum of experiences that we're all living inside of. And that everyone's story of their own assault experience matters. Yes. Um, that it's not, uh, you know, that it, it doesn't have to be. So there's something in this particular moment of like <clears throat> that we're navigating both like the horror of how widespread it is, as well as the horror of how every day it is and the horror of things that we wouldn't typically consider to be horrible. But now we would now we can see them as horrible inside of this broader context. Like I think that that's one of the things that this particular movement is doing um, is enabling mm. us to see the things that we perceived as normal as not normal. And that's really important because the previous iterations were really about saying, look how horrible this pedophilia is. That's why it's so horrible that that's why we have to do something about it. Right. It's, it's primarily about how vulnerable people are. Right. right. And this is more about this moment is about both our vulnerability as well as about the way people's agency is taken from them. And so, so anyway, so I just wanted to well, say all of that. To I begin just want with. to pause you there to say, you're so brilliant. And I really appreciate um, that sort of step back and overarching like, oh, what is the context of this? And I think that it's so important that what you're naming it to me, it's like, oh, it's so much of so much of how we function is to be like, oh, it's over there, over there. That is a horrible thing. Like. Um, you know, over in the military where people are like, you know, the structure is like this or over in the church where the structure is like this, um, it's so bad. And then even in this work, it's been like, oh, in Hollywood, it's like this. Oh, in academia now, it's starting to be like, it's like this. And I think that the sooner people can understand that it's like, you know, what we're learning is like, it's completely pervasive. It's, oh, in every household, it's like this. In every workplace, it's like this. On every public transportation, it's like this. And to to be like, we are swimming in a water. It's not like we go on vacation to rape land. It's like we're swimming in the water of rape land all the time, all the time, right? And I mean, but I think that people kind of feel that. It's like it's somewhere far off and exotic that you go to and get harmed. And it's like, no, it's the it's the mundane spaces. Um, and it's the places where you sh- um, ostensibly should feel safe. So I really appreciate you naming that. And also that helps me even remember like what the first couple of months felt like versus what it's starting to feel like now. Because I feel like the first couple of months were so powerful um, and hard, right? It was just like, oh, every single time I get on any social media, I am basically signing on to see who else has decided to share their story um, and reading these stories that I was like, oh, and some of them touching into my own experience and some of them, you know, different from my own experience, but really starting to be like, you know, these numbers of one in four, one in three, 
every single person, you know, like it just started yeah. to be like, oh, the yeah. numbers have stories and the stories have to change. They change us. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah I think um, the summer was very tender for me. I actually had to avoid social media because yeah. um, at the same and it's curious to think about now, but at the same moment that this, uh, that Me Too was really popping off in the summer, I, in a way that I thought was disconnected from this, but now I'm realizing maybe was really connected. I yeah. was going through an experience in my therapy work of uncovering um, childhood memories of sexual assault Mm -hmm. and I've known for many years that I am a survivor of childhood sexual assault from an age that I I remembered it happening right and the memories that I was uncovering in July of last year indicated that there was an earlier sexual assault that I had not been able to recall that I was that I'm I'm really still not able to fully recall. I'm still in the process of, of, of uncovering it. And, and so I spent so much of the month of July and a lot of August in like very much in a state of, uh, being triggered. And I mean that in the actual usage of the word, (laughs) not in the like popular usage that we all like, everyone's like, I'm triggered by that. I'm triggered by that. And I'm I'm like, like, no, no, I was like, literally, (laughs) I'm like, no, I was literally in like, you know, and so I was like in a, and, and also just in a state of like hypervigilance, um, because for anyone who's had that experience of, of uncovering, um, childhood abuse memories, it's one of the things that you experience inside of it is you fear the memory that's coming. Exactly. You both want to know, but you really don't want to know. Like you fear that it's coming and you fear that, especially in the process of beginning to uncover it, there's a fear that it's going to come through in a moment where you can't actually contain it. Right. And so I was in the state of hypervigilance for like weeks of just like, I, I can't, I can't relax because what if the memory just comes through and I'm like, you know, at the fucking grocery store with my kids, like I'm not going to be able to handle it. I couldn't, I couldn't handle what came through during my therapy session. You know what I'm saying? Like my therapist had to like hold my body up. So yeah. yeah, So I was, so then every time I would go onto Facebook or (laughs) Instagram or Twitter or whatever, I would be like, I just have to log off immediately. I have to go right off immediately. I can't actually look at any of this. I remember getting really angry. I was angry. I was angry that people were sharing their stories, not angry at people, but I was literally having this like aggravated experience of just being like, could people just stop? Don't people understand how harmful this is? It took me a few weeks to really just, um, you know, detach a little, uh, detach enough from it to understand that like, this same experience that was making me feel like I couldn't escape my body and couldn't escape my memories was something that was helping other folks feel more in their bodies and more in their memories and more in in an ability to accept the experiences that they had had um, or were having currently, you know? Yes. And so I feel like, you know, the way I was, the way I was relating to it um, in the summer is 
pretty different from how I'm relating to it right now. I think I have a little bit more of a, of a, even as I was just doing, right? Like putting it in historical context, like a, right now I'm able exactly. to sort of historicize and contextualize and understand the nature of what's happening in a way that like in August, I just couldn't, I just couldn't yeah. take yeah. it in. That's it. I, um, you know, I feel so many things. I feel every time I think about harm coming to you when you were a child, it just breaks my heart, you know? Um, like, I'm like, I'm your older sister. And where was I? You know, like, how could I not protect you from things happening? Um, and I'm also in my own process of trying to understand what happened in my own life. And yes, yes. I feel like last summer, um, you know, it's so interesting because I think I was like a, I think at first I was just like, yeah, of course, y'all like, of course, you, I think I was just like, yeah, we've all had this experience. Like I was, I was glad that people were being brave and sharing. And I also felt like, I think I was disappointed by how surprised other people seemed by how prevalent, uh, by how much harm had happened right like when people were like, wow yeah. it's so much and i'm like are you really shocked like the same way i feel you know when someone's like wow so many black people are being killed by the police i'm like are you yeah. really shocked like where are you like or like oh my right. gosh it's you know it's a travesty what's happening in gaza i'm like yeah you know our, our country's a mess you know like all these things <laughs> there's a way that i'm like yeah like what where have you been um and then um but I think even that, what I'm learning about myself is there's a way that my frustration, like I'll feel frustrated and then that's covering up my hurt. And this feeling of how do you continue to not see us and not see all the pain that's happening? Um, and I know that part of what happened last fall, like summer into fall, was, um, you know, as some of the stories got unveiled, I would be like, really? You know, like, that's not that bad. And oh, yeah, I feel right? ashamed to say this. Right. Um, but it also feels important to say this, that like some of my initial reactions to some of the stuff was like, you know, as a survivor, I'm like, really? Like, that's not that big of a deal. Or like, you just need to learn to communicate better. And I know like around the Louis C.K. stuff, around Aziz Ansari stuff that I was just kind of like, eh. and it took me a while to really mm. drop into actually no, that is harmful, which means if that was harmful to them, than similar experiences I had in my life. Like, yes. you know, what I thought was like, here's my set number of sexual assault experiences compounded, multiplied um, by all these other experiences yes. where yes. I was disempowered, not in consent, not even asked about something, you know, we're, so, you know, not um, sober, not, you know, like all the things that ideally you're supposed to be in an empowering sexual experience. And it's felt like a the rug was pulled out of me as someone who has spent a huge amount of time thinking about these things in my own life mm -hmm. and in the community that I'm a part of and supporting other people through healing processes related to exactly this work. And yes, um, yes. I remember sitting with a very good friend of mine. We had like a, we got a hotel room for the night and we each had our own little beds and we each were sitting there just like in the robes of the hotel, just being like, yeah, you know, like what if this was, what if this was, what if this was, and kind of just sharing like 
kind of being able to vulnerably say this happened, was that harmful? This happened, was that harmful? And um, can we, can we, can I sit with the breadth of harm that has happened to me? And if I sit with it, how do I continue? How do I move forward? Um, and, you know, to bring the journey to a more current place, I think part of what's also been happening is my abolitionist side is very like, oh, what do I do? What do we do right now? Like, how do we, <laughs> you know, cause I'm like, I don't believe that prisons solve harm or stop harm or resolve trauma or resolve tragedy. I don't believe that they work and I don't believe that humans belong in them. Um, and so I look back at all the people who caused harm to me and I'm like, I don't think prison is the answer for them. Um, but then I look at, you know, like Harvey Weinstein just got arrested the other day and I felt mixed feelings. You know, I was just like, he does need to be held accountable. What is the accountability mechanism? Um, I'm seeing all these people who have spoken up and said that they're abolitionists and they just seem biting at the, you know, uh, I don't know what the meta, I, this is the other thing that's been happening is like, I've lost my commun communication skills around some of this. Oh um, yeah. It feels like it touches into such a deep place <laughs> in me that I become much less coherent than I usually feel. Um, so what is it? Chomping at the bit, but I just feel like, yeah, yeah you I, got it. <laughs> like, what is it? Chomping at the bit. Come on, Adrian, your brain is still functioning, but <laughs> I just feel like, you know, and, and particularly looking at like Juno Diaz, who like, I'm like, I'm in community with Juno. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not like we're like, I'm close friends or anything with him, but you know, I've been through the Vona program and mm -hmm. I was deeply moved by his initial piece. And I've been looking at, you know, how this has unfolded and how people, you know, we're issuing statements, we're writing letters, we're taking these stances. Um, and I'm inside of all of that, I'm like, yes. And I, I still want us to understand, like, as abolitionists, as people who believe in transformative justice, and as people who have been harmed, what do we do? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So I want to pull a couple of threads from what you said. Yeah. I actually first want to go back to the this piece you were lifting up around surprise. And, yeah. um, or that, you know, you were noting that, um, you were disappointed in people's surprise and frustrated by people's surprise. And I think that it, as you rightly notice, it's both surprise is a form of resistance and our frustration or annoyance with what's happening is also a form of resistance. Right. And, and one of the things that I think we're all inside of in this moment is the myriad ways that we are all resisting knowing and understanding what's happening. I was just in a conversation the other day with an older man um, who was learning via the conversation that uh, a man that he knew had been accused of sexual assault. And he it was kind of incredible to watch his process of denial. Yeah. Um, like it was triggering to hear him to hear, but also kind of amazing to watch him like trot out all of the reasons that people typically trot out for why this person that he trusts would never do it. 
you know, including he's married, including he does beautiful, amazing work, including yeah. I've always trusted him. And, you know, yes. all these things, um, all these different oh things, and, and all, all of the things about his personality, <laughs> yes. all the things about his lifestyle, all the reasons why, yeah. like, he doesn't fit the profile, quote unquote. And exactly. I kind of was, I'm just sitting there in this, in this conversation being like, wow, like, you're literally going through the cycle that everyone goes through of denial exactly. around why it is that this person that you don't believe it. And, and it's I have, I, grief. I, and it's, it's grief. And process. at some point it's like losing someone yeah. and exactly. And at some point I said to him, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm never surprised when a man is accused of sexual assault, you know? Yeah. And he said, well, just cause he's a man doesn't mean that he did it. And, and I was like, yeah, but <laughs> but because he's a man and we live inside of rape culture, our immediate go-to when we hear that someone has been sexually assaulted isn't necessarily like the, it, it doesn't make sense for the immediate go-to to be absolute denial that it's possible, right? Because oh, we know yeah. Yeah. that the most likely scenario actually, like one of the things that I think is that we are uncovering inside of this moment is that if you are a man in our society, the most likely scenario is that you have behaved in an assaultive way towards someone. That is the most likely scenario, actually. Yes. Right? Yes. If we look at the numbers. And that you were trained to do so. That you, that were, you were trained to do, to do so, so, right? From the very it's not first personal. Step, breath, it has nothing to do life. with your, yeah, it has nothing <laughs> to do with your personality. There's no profile no. attached to it. There's like, there's nothing no. that makes someone more likely to assault aside from they are a man living inside of patriarchy. That's the thing that makes them most likely to assault, right? And so the yeah. assumption that that there's like a particular profile, but then in this same conversation, I also then witnessed this man um, say that the person who was reporting the accusations was not a trustworthy person. Yes. So I also watched yeah. him do the thing that men that that we see happening in our society as a whole of saying this person is not trustworthy. This other person is not trustworthy. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And and, you know, so it was like it was really interesting to be inside of a conversation like that and be like, oh, our we are not only so deeply trained into the normalcy of these behaviors, but we are also right. deeply trained into the normalcy of denial both denial right. of other people's lived experience, denial of mm. any information that's coming through, um, yes. you know, and the absolute just rejection of the information itself. Right. Um, and then on the flip. Yeah. And so, and I think, I think yeah. that's where I think that like our gut reactions, you know, the gut reaction you're, you're describing of disappointment and frustration. It makes a lot of sense inside of that because we as survivors, we know that yeah. we will not be believed, right? So there's a, yeah. there's like a, um, you know, I know in my life there's been a real continuity of experience of both feeling like I can't be out as a survivor. Yeah. And that if I do come out as a survivor, it's giving something up. Yep. Or that if I do come out as a survivor. What are you giving up? That I'm giving up that in some way that I mean, I'm, I'm learning now that I that it doesn't necessarily result yeah. in me giving up my agency. But for years, I yeah. protected my identity as a survivor of abuse. I just wouldn't I would yes. not tell people about it. Even people I was really close to, even people in my political work, I just wouldn't would not come out as a survivor yeah. um, because 
for years it felt to me like it was this like it, it felt like I would get dropped into this box and then the box got yes. to be like lifted and carried around by people yeah. but I would lose my agency inside of it um and you know what I'm yeah. what I'm starting to do now is really connect that that feeling that I'm going to be like put in a box with my actual assault right that like there's a connection between like I perceive that if I identify as a survivor then I'm going to be putting myself in a position to relive something right and Mm -hmm. so it's I'm I'm noticing now that like part of claiming that part of my life is about being able to actually integrate the experience in my body and in my memory so that it's not this like so that it's not this like hidden dark corner of my memory that I can't like, cause right now the way it functions in my life is that it's like literally, it's literally like there's a, a, a veil hanging over like a two year period of my childhood. And I can only like, I can slide the veil to the side and I can peek around it a little bit, but I can't actually see what happened during that window of time. Like I don't have access to it. Um, and so I, I'm understanding that in order for me to get access to that and then fully integrate it, I have to come into my identity fully. Um, but I'm having to figure out how I do that on my terms. And I think that that's like, and that's what I'm witnessing inside of this political moment of like, everyone's trying to figure out like, how do we do it on our terms? Our terms meaning that it may not actually ever have anything to do with the perpetrator. Yes, exactly. And like often, I mean, so there's so much richness in what you just shared, like all of it. You know, I want to say, I really feel you on the unveiling and, um, there's a way for me um, that I deny myself the space and the right to even go through the process because of that. I'm Because it's like, it's behind a veil. It's fine. It already happened. Whatever it is already happened. I say I survived and I made it here. And like, why look back there? Right? Like I'm here. Right. You know? Um, and there's people going through real stuff right now, you know, leave the past in the past. Like there's all this stuff that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want to honor that, that there's something now when, where it feels like whether I wanted this to be a period of my life where I was doing unveiling around these experiences or not, I don't actually have as much agency as I might like to have, um, because every day there's something that's coming up that I have to read and be like, oh, you know, <laughs> if that is what that person considers assault, I have yet another thing I have right, to do. Right, right. And um, so, you know, there's this way that it's like, oh, it's a tender time. And I think this piece around agency is is so crucial because it's like what we want to reclaim. It's like I don't want to go unveiling things for no reason. Um, I want to unveil towards my wholeness. I want to unveil towards real intimacy in my life. I want to unveil towards being in community with men and not feeling like they're all monsters or time bombs, you know, but really feeling like they are, um, you know, uh, 
that there's a victim perpetrator, victim perpetrator, victim perpetrator blur that happens um, where it's like, and I think this has been part, maybe this is also part of my disappointment in this moment. Um, and I've been trying to write about it and trying to think about it a lot, but just feeling like it, the only way I think that we get through this moment is if we're able to hold complexity. And that's not what we want to do because, you know, it's a very heavy pendulum that we're swinging, right? And the pendulum has been on the side of rape culture for so long that it's like, you know, anywhere I go, anywhere I am, that's a place where I might get my boundaries crossed, either with words, with touch, with sexual touch, like that might happen. And so the pendulum is swinging back the other way. And like, to me, that kind of masculine, I can assault anyone is a very reductive way of seeing women. And it's a very reductive way of power being held because it's not always man, women, right? Man, woman. There's a lot of men who have experienced sexual assault. There's a lot of people, trans people who have experienced sexual assault. There's a lot of, you know, everyone is experiencing this, but it is to me so deeply tied to the way masculinity plays out in our culture and it's very reductive. And so then I see what happens for us is like, as the pendulum swings this way, we kind of get reductive too. Mm. It's just like, well, if once you're, you know, if you cross the line to being an abuser, that's it. You're just an abuser and no one will see the complexity of you, see the other things of you. People say we need to cancel. We need to get rid of, we need to, that's right. it. And I'm like, no, that reductive thing in and of itself is a masculine way of viewing the world or a masculinized way of holding power. And we are, um, on the other side of it, I identify this as a way that I hold my feminine power is very much about, I hold nuance and creative potential. I hold multitudes. I hold complexity. Like I know that, um, I know that it's not this clean line for most people. It's not a clean mm. line between, you know, I, I'm a pure victim and we want these pure victims. And it reminds me of the same thing of like when, um, when a young black person, when any black person gets killed by the police. Right. And they're like, oh, he was a model student. Right. And it's like, you as know, though like, so a, as though like this. an F student or a C student deserves to be shot. Exactly. F student, take them out. But B student who was trying hard, you know, and I'm like the same thing. Like we want these pure narratives that are not true. The truth is we're complex people and then harm happens to us. We None of us deserve any of it. Right. Um, and then usually if that harm doesn't get touched into and healed and addressed, it manifests into something toxic. And we are in such a toxic overload right now. Um, and so I don't think there's any way that any kind of reductive politic is going to get us out of that toxic cauldron. I think that it's going to be holding complexity and being able to hold that each of these people who has caused harm and especially the most egregious harm comes from somewhere. And if we can't get to the root of what's causing that egregious harm, we will never stop it. Well, and it's interesting too, because I think that some of it has to do with how we actually define harm. Because I think that like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even follow me here, because this is going to be a little weird, but even like in the in the in the example you just gave of um, like if we take this out of sexual assault and look at police violence, um, part of the challenge that we've been up against inside of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements against police violence is helping society at large understand that the police are violent. 
helping society at large understand that when that when the police kill someone, it's harmful. It challenges a very baseline narrative that we have about the police that white people have about the police or I should say not just white people, but people who are protected by the police have that when the police kill someone, they do so because that person deserved to be killed. And therefore it's not harmful that that person exactly. died. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so part of what's happening inside that work is helping people understand that anytime the police kill, it is harmful and violent. It is never not harmful exactly. for the police to murder someone. Okay. So exactly. I think, and I think that that's the similar, it's, it's, a, there's a similar thing happening inside of, or I wonder, I guess, if there's a similar thing well, happening. Or in, just, just really quickly on that, like, you know, to get people to understand, like there are countries where the police are not armed and somehow they are able to stop crimes from happening and catch criminals and like go through processes and no one dies. Right. And like that, that, that idea for people feels so like, what, like, how could that happen? And yeah, so yes. I just wanted to throw that in there because it feels like I'm, I'm following you and I'm like, yes. And like to get people to think like, oh, maybe something else is even possible is like, what? Right. So mind blowing. And to me, this really speaks to how we value life. And I think in, a, in our culture, in American culture, how we value life or don't value it is directly related to our invisibilized history of genocide and enslavement, right? That I think that because we have this, yes, the foundation yeah. of our culture is genocide and enslavement. I think that that has a yes. real psychological impact on how we understand and value life and harm, like how we understand what harm is, right? And so going oh, going yes. back into talking about <laughs> sexual assault, yes. I think that that's, I think that there's a real way in which like our collective history of brutality as like an acceptable part of life is still being lived out inside of this right that we're like that we are still having to have conversations about what qualifies as sexual assault you know that we are still having conversations yeah well and I was just talking about this yet I literally was just saying this the other day to a friend because I was just like you have a, a country that was founded on we will rape indigenous women and kill them and we will rape black women and kill them whenever we want to like that that was what it meant to to be a man right was like i will dominate by i i will dominate um, women in this way or i will dominate my men by raping their women yeah. or taking their women or taking their children and i'm like then you know we, we there's there's uprisings there's pushings back there's a technical slight step away from slavery culture, slight step away from Jim Crow. It's never like an exuberant leap forward, right? It's like, fuck, if I have to give up my slaves, I'll fucking give them up. But now who am I going to rape, right? Now who am I going to flog? Now who am I going to punish, right? That had, that energy goes somewhere. It doesn't get transmuted because it, that change did not happen because people changed their hearts and minds. That change happened because they were, um, put in their place. And I think right now, you know, big, big, big picture, the culture that we're living in, being in an America like this with Trump at the head of it, who is the epitome of a white plantation owning ignoramus, exactly. right? Like that's who he was a hundred years ago. That's who he was, right? And like now here we have him again, like this kind of man at the head and these kind of men and these kind of humans, Roseanne's and others, coming out of the woodwork, just like horrific human beings that are just, you know, I'm just like, 
Now, I don't doubt that there's transformative potential in you because I deeply believe that every human has the capacity to transform. If I didn't, I don't think I could even stay on this planet, right? But inside of that, uh, I'm just like, we have to understand that's how deep this rabbit hole goes, is that what is resurfacing and like what has been happening behind closed doors of our homes um, and, and in this office workspace, all of that is like this culture of dominance that is tied back to the culture of dominance of slavery, that is tied back to the culture of dominance of genocide. And if we're going to heal it, we have to take it that seriously. Right. And that the psychology is that powerful. Right. Yeah. And that, and I feel like this is, this is the, the thing that I'm driving towards is that all of this has an, all of this directly relates to how we understand whether something is harmful or not. And yes. if we can't shift the shift the landscape of understanding what is harm and what enables us to prevent harm, then yeah. then there, there there isn't hope of actually changing it and there's no amount of storytelling that will change it, right? And yeah. so I think that and I and I and I and I say that wanting to immediately qualify it with, I think that the storytelling is incredibly powerful. I think that the storytelling oh, is a part yeah. of, it's absolutely a part of changing the landscape or shifting the trajectory. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a huge set of missing stories. We do yes. not have the stories. We don't have the me too stories that we need, right? Yeah. The me too stories that we need are men coming forward saying, I sexually assaulted. Me too. Yeah. I also sexually assaulted and here's how I did it. And here's what was happening in my body when I did it. And here's, and I'm not saying that anyone necessarily wants to hear those stories. And I know as a survivor, I would find that really challenging. And yeah. I also feel very aware that until just like with white people in race, like until white people can get in touch with what happens in your body when you relax into the experience of having power over someone else's life. Yes. Men have to, Men who have assaulted have to begin telling the story of what happened in your body when you relaxed into the power to take away someone else's agency over their body. Do you understand what happened? Do you understand as it's happening what is happening, right? So there's this, so to me, there's a, and I think this is, this is like leading us towards like the part two conversation that we're, that we're going to be having, right? Around like, what are the solutions, because right now we're really we're really inside the moment of we are all we are all especially those of us who are survivors I think many of us are feeling at a loss um yeah and 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 we're trying to figure out like what are some of the possible solutions and I do think that inside of that one of the solutions is men actually coming forward and like having their own movement of yeah coming out as assaulters, right? Coming out well, as people who have, who have abused. I think this is huge. And I feel like I want to share a little piece because I wrote this piece called We Will Not Cancel Us, which I felt like this is the, at my best thinking about this moment, this is the heart of my best thinking, right? Um, I was like, okay, I got this. And, or I, I, I understand this much of it. And it's very much, Autumn, super tied into this that like, those who have caused harm need to be able to speak from the place of having caused that harm and not to continue to have all of the emotional labor 
on those who went through the harm and have survived and now are like, and now more labor and now more labor and now more labor, right? Um, it's so close to that same thing with racism where it's like, I don't want to tell you any more about how to be a good white person. I want yes. you to go read some books and like go talk to Catalyst and like figure it out. And I'm like, right. I want to see like, what is the Catalyst equivalent? What is the surge equivalent? Like what is the equivalent of radical mass movement for men and for those who have caused harm? Um, what is the sexual harmers anonymous? Like what are the spaces where these stories will get told and where folks will start to self-correct and self-manage some of this work? Because it's not about more workshops and trainings on how to stop being a fucking asshole sexual assaulter. Like that, that all of that stuff is out there, right? It's like the culture shift has to happen there. So I'll read this a little bit and then I think we're probably at time, right? Yeah, um, totally. So I said, we will not cancel us, but we must earn our place on this earth. We will tell each other we hurt people and who. We will tell each other why and who hurt us and how. We will tell each other what we will do to heal ourselves and heal the wounds in our wake. We will be accountable, rigorous in our accountability all of us unlearning, all of us crawling towards dignity. We will learn to set and hold boundaries, communicate without manipulation, give and receive consent, ask for help, love our shadows without letting them rule our relationships. And remember, we are of earth, of miracle, of a whole, of a massive river. Love, life, life, love. We all have work to do. Um, mm, yes. So, yeah, I feel like, oh, if I can keep remembering we all have work to do and we and it requires communication, then I can see a way forward. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so, so much for sharing I love that, you Adrian. So much for being I love in this you conversation too. I'm, with me, sweetheart. Like I'm glad we one. started this off. It is a hard one. Yeah. And and there's more to come. So just for our listeners, um, we are gonna we are gonna have a part two and possibly even a part three of this conversation. Um, we're gonna move into talking about um, transformative justice as a movement, as a as an area of work that many people are doing really incredible and important work around. We yeah. are going to also talk about the role of fame and famousness inside of Me Too yes. and Time's Up and like how is that impacting what accountability looks like. Um, yes. And we're also going to have some really exciting interviews, we hope, as a part of this process. So um, yeah. stay tuned. There's more coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And and thank you for listening and, and um, being a part of this journey with us. We know that these are really hard conversations to have. All right, um, let's go to our credits, huh? I'm there, say? I'm ready. Okay. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash into the world show. And I want to just give you a very special update that everyone who is a patron of ours so far and anyone who makes it basically in the next couple weeks is going to get a very special gift. Our friend Dory Midnight has created a tincture, an apocalypse potion for how to survive the end of the world. And we'll be sending those out to you. So if you already are a patron, it's going to be coming your way. We'll give you some instructions soon about how to sign up and you'll get some special stuff. And if you're not a patron, but you love apocalypse potions, go ahead and become a sustaining donor and we will get it to you. 
It's so exciting. It's very um, exciting. Uh, in addition to becoming a patron, another helpful thing you can do um, to help us sustain ourselves is write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. Thanks. Um, How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the fantastical Zach Rosen. Music for today's session comes from Tunde Alanaran and Mother Cyborg.